Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. You are listening to episode 136 on November 16, 2023. Episode one of the Fun Police podcast series is out. It was released yesterday and you can listen to it wherever you're listening to podcasts right now. You can just type in Fun Police and uh, please subscribe and if you tick the notification bell then you will also get notifications when the new episodes drop episode two is out next week it's hosted by Jarosowski who you've heard on this weekly podcast before um, so yeah thank you for subscribing I hope you really uh, enjoy it and this podcast uh, here consumer will still go on weekly as you know it and I have uh, two uh, guests for you this week and I will just play them back to back with just a small transition in between um, and uh, yeah so I have Stephen Kent uh, from the Consumer Choice Center who will telling us about gas stoves so a new report in the Netherlands says that gas stoves might be bad for you uh, and he is uh, joining me to tell us about how that conversation previously unfolded in the United States and what we need to watch out for and then we're talking about flight reductions bans on short-haul flights and is your low-cost airline ripping you off? And I'm talking to Gary Leff from viewfromthewing.com to discuss the latest in aviation news. The news out of the Netherlands is that uh, gas stoves are polluting at home. This is Dutch News reporting. Uh, cooking on gas leads to a worse indoor climate than cooking on an electric stove with the percentage of nitrogen dioxide often exceeding recommended limits, according to research by the Dutch TNO Institute. And this has launched a conversation about the legitimacy of continuing to allow consumers on having their gas stoves, uh, the old gas stoves at home. Uh, and we are now joined by Stephen Kent uh, from here at the Consumer Choice Center to talk about uh, the conversation that was uh, uh, sort of starting all of this in the US. The Americans were, were a bit earlier on this whole gas stove conversation. Stephen, can you fill us in on how that went? Well, the way that this has gone in the United States thus far is that environmentalist groups have championed, you know, their own series of reports, which seem to show or purport to show um, an increase in respiratory illnesses, um, as well as sickness uh, in people who have gas stoves. Uh, this is for apartment buildings, townhouses, uh, and, um, you know, single family homes. Now, there is a mix of evidence on this entire front. There is a, a robust debate going on uh, in the realm of, of science on whether or not these things that we use to cook our food uh, have any sort of side effects that we don't know about. But the Department of Energy has sort of run away in the United States with an effort to curtail the installation of gas stoves in new single-family homes and new developments in the United States. And they do this, of course, on the grounds of diversity, equity, and inclusion, because that is the, the sort of mode uh, for passing all of these sorts of regulations, uh, environmental justice, if you will. Uh, the basic argument is that the presence of gas stoves, uh, particularly in apartment buildings, has an adverse effect uh, on poorer populations. And so, in the progressive in the progressive mindset, uh, if that is the case, then <laughs> then it's a justice issue. Uh, it's it's very strange, uh, particularly considering that gas stoves are the favorite cooking implements of. Uh, the wealthy and the well-to-do. Um, you know, gas stoves are a luxury 
good. You know, that's they make the best food for stovetops uh, and particularly for like really good high end forms of food that people want to cook. I guess it shows that I'm not much of a cook because I do like the induction plates because I, they're easier to clean. But anyway, people should have their individual uh, choices. Now, um, what does that look like in terms of, uh, of regulation? Where are we on this? W will they actually be banned? Um, and and could there be legal challenges? Is there actual, will legislation be needed or can this all be done through the through the agencies? Well, it can be done through the agencies. Absolutely. The Department of Energy under Jennifer Granholm, has taken it upon themselves to start proposing new rules that would limit fuel sources that consumers can choose from for all of their future, future cooking implements. So basically what this would look like is they would uh, raise the cost of production on gas stoves to the point where they would really be unaffordable to most people. So, of course, uh, you know, governments don't like to use the word ban when they can avoid using it, uh, but they will basically push these products off the market and force people onto electric uh, and convection stoves. Uh, that's the general idea. Now, Congress has gotten involved and have made an effort to stop any such thing from happening, which is good. Uh, the Save Our Gas Stoves Act uh, has passed both the House and the Senate here in the United States um, and is, you know, just in need of a, of a presidential signature, which Biden has, of course, not offered. But under an election season where he has to defend uh, a ban on gas stoves versus uh, protecting consumers' choice, I think he would probably actually end up signing such a law. Um, but this has really taken, I think, a couple of different forms in the U.S. So you've got the, the federal rulemaking bodies in the Department of Energy. And then you have state legislatures. State legislatures are moving forward in deep blue states in the United States with banning gas stoves. This has already happened in New York City as of May 2023. They have passed a full ban on natural gas stoves for most new building developments in the state. So that's going to be future apartments, town home developments, and all that kind of stuff, which means that you're basically going to have a population of individuals who get the benefits of gas stoves, uh, and then future populations who do not and have to cook on electric. And, you know, the, the pushback to this is pretty wide ranging, which is why 33 Democrats signed on to the Save Our Gas Stoves Act. I think there are a lot of lawmakers out there who are comfortable with regulating products off the market as long as they don't have to put their name on it, which is why you have rulemaking bodies like the Department of Energy who take this and they run with it. It sort of gives cover to lawmakers who don't want to actually lawmake. <laughs> yeah, it seems that this is a recurring theme. Uh, what, what is interesting is that in Europe, we have the situation where we don't really have the regulatory agencies that can make those decisions. In a way, that's good because you know you have the oversight by having your parliamentarian decide on on a lot of these uh, on a lot of these rules. But then we also a lot more ban friendly uh, than the United States. So 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 you know people are more inclined to still support their parliamentarians even if they ban something that they were previously using. Um, now uh, there will be there will be continuously uh, pushback on this, but then also. Um, is there a, is there a is there a gas stove manufacturing industry that can litigate this? Can can this lead to court cases where you know the government would actually have to prove that there is sufficient evidence on 
um, on, on a need for a ban. Uh, because ultimately, if you're making the case, if, if researchers are making the case that this is bad for people's health, then ultimately the manufacturers should have communicated that to the users, right? So, so, so what, does that, what does that look like? Can, can we expect anything to come out of that? Well, this all this all got started when um, Richard Trumka, a U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commissioner, you know, kind of a bureaucrat here in the United States, uh, he set off a large firestorm at the very beginning of this year, January 2023, uh, when he gave an interview and said that gas stoves were being shown to be a significant source of indoor pollution and childhood asthma. This comes from one single report uh, by an activist organization that wants to reduce uh, the amount of emissions worldwide and see gas stoves as one of those causes of emissions. This is an organization that also wants to ban lawnmowers in the United States, gasoline-powered lawnmowers. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the situation is like in Europe, but you know we have big yards here, uh, and you know for <laughs> and so you got to have you got to have a serious tool uh, to cut those lawns, uh, backyards and front yards, and electric lawnmowers just don't do it. Um, but this is all part of a, a environmentalist effort, and they are using safety and childhood trauma as a, a vehicle to do that. And there's just incredibly, incredibly scant evidence to show that this is the case. So uh, last question then, uh, can, we, can we, I mean, if you had to make a prediction, can we, uh, can we expect gas stoves to continue to exist uh, after, uh, after 2024? Do you think the, the, the pushback uh, that it currently receives will be sufficient? You mentioned there is an election year. Um, mm-hmm. uh, because I, I, it feels to me that if the US, the US might, might be like a first domino and then the ripple effects will come into Europe as well, because it seems that some of the reports here are inspired from, what's, uh, what, from the conversation in the US. Well, the work of the Consumer Choice Center is really important here. You know, there has to be a wide range of both individuals, lawmakers, and outside organizations who speak for consumers who have to stop or at least slow this stuff down. I do believe fully that there would have been a Department of Energy regulation passed down uh, in the middle of this year in the United States that would have uh, forced gas stoves off of the market if people hadn't have noticed. Uh, You know, the Consumer Choice Center immediately jumped in with press releases, writing articles in multiple different markets. I wrote one for a large paper here in the state of Virginia. And when the Department of Energy uh, actually is, is, has a spotlight on them, people see what they're doing, then they're on defense and they have to defend the regulation that they want to force down on everyday Americans. And what do they do? They kind of go, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. We were just proposing. It was just an idea that we were floating. And then they slow down the process. And then it gets mired in politics. And now we have an election coming up in 2024. There is no way Joe Biden or even Kamala Harris is going to campaign on getting rid of their wealthiest donors' uh, gas stoves. That's just, it's just not going to happen. But... I do believe that the issue will come back up because control freaks, the fun police, busybodies, all these individuals, they stay in government from administration to administration. So this fight is probably just beginning. It will probably rear its head again in 2025. And if we forget about it and don't engage on it and don't speak up as consumers about what products we want to use, uh, they could be taken. 
they could be rule uh, regulated against and, and pushed off the market. So that's why I'm really happy to be working at CCC and, you know, just, you know, beating the drum on these issues. We're here with Gary Leff from you from the wing.com. Um, and uh, Gary has a lot of insights into the aviation uh, industry and how consumers use it. And I wanted to talk to him to get uh, uh, some feedback on, on, on a lot of the recent aviation regulation news that we've been uh, having out there. So, Gary, first off, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Happy to talk about all this. So first off, we have the incoming uh, Spanish government, which says that it wants to re uh, it wants to cut all the existing short haul flights. So this uh, the, the target is that flights from the cities like Barcelona, Valencia, Alicante and Sevilla uh, to Madrid routes currently operated by Iberia, Vueling and Air Europa uh, will uh, be abolished. And there's a few other domestic routes like Barcelona, Sevilla, which will not be affected because the rail journey takes more than five hours. So essentially, that is the standard. If by train you cannot make it, um, uh, uh, if you not can, if you cannot make it under under five hours, it will be maintained. Um, some some initial thoughts on on this type of measure. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's tremendous amount to say about it. I mean, first in the specific, and then a little bit more broadly. Um, it's sort of interesting. What it does is it makes flights in and out of Madrid. I mean, far less efficient, right? It makes you know. It means that you're going to have people who are coming from you know farther away, connecting through other hubs. Fewer people on those long haul flights. I mean, not the most environmentally uh, friendly thing. Um, it you know. Fairly, you can you can say that people have to take you know longer train journeys. I mean, then they, you know, may not do so. But at the at the, at the broadest level, I, we have to we think about um, pollution from flying in a bit of a weird way. So first, you know, all of flying may contribute as much as um, you know four percent of global emissions. Half of that uh, is cargo. Um, so we're talking about 2% of worldwide flying, 2% uh, of, of, of emissions from worldwide flying. Um, but it's not the case that just all flying is actually equal in terms of what it um, contributes. It, what we're, the biggest uh, emissions that we actually worry about in terms of affecting the climate are you know, contrails from planes, the water vapor and exhaust that are forming ice crystals. So um, when you look at the actual contrail formation, um, it's only a small subset of flights that are contributing, you know, most. Um, and when we look at how we can alleviate those, um, just out, what altitude you're at uh, makes a big difference. Flying a couple thousand feet higher uh, can make a huge difference in mitigating that impact. Uh, it seems like it goes a lot farther than just saying you can't fly, uh, especially when many of the flights and much of the journey isn't really contributing anything meaningful to you know, environmental pollutants. American Airlines and Google are currently engaged in tests and data collection on this about how they can identify where it is that they're going to be um, causing these emissions and how they can mitigate that. Uh, and it seems Ultimately, we're going to need you know technological solutions rather than you know more, much more symbolic things like saying oh well we just should deny ourselves flying when it's you know only only a five hour journey by train uh, which by the way if you can do you know five hours and one hour and you multiply that out of passengers on a plane and you know passengers across the year is a lot of you know, time it's a lot of product you know productivity lost productivity you know that's meaningful to people's lives um, but if if it's not benefiting the environment then that's you know not necessarily a trade off that you. 
want. You, what you want to do is ask people to, to make the changes that are going to matter. Uh, and for a long time, we've talked about uh, China and its growth as overwhelming things that we might do for um, the environment, the small changes in, in the West you know, as they grow. But I mean, I really think what we need to look at is India, right? So India has as many people as China now, and currently one third the per capita GDP as, as China. I mean, their catch-up growth alone is going to absolutely overwhelm this. That's why we really need to look at ways of improving um, our, uh, you know, the, the way we go about um, aviation and everything else from a technological standpoint, whether it's, you know, driving down the cost of direct carbon capture, right, whether it's how can we fly um, in, in a way that is, you know, less emitting, especially when it's, when our model, our mental model is wrong, and it's not all flying is equal, uh, right, and so therefore you take a couple planes out and, and it linearly reduces your, your emissions. That's not true because most of it comes, you know, from 15% of the flying, right? So what I think this comes down to is being much more symbolic than actual contributor to anything that is helpful for people who care about the environment. And I would prefer to focus our efforts on the things that actually that actually matter. To stick on this issue for, for one more question, uh, I, I so this is one part, which is the environmental question. And then there's the other part, which is what does this exactly mean for consumers? Because the impression seems to be with the government that most people try to fly from Madrid to Barcelona because they just like flying so much and they only try to get between those two cities. But a lot of people take connecting flights. Now, the the one of the offers that doesn't just seem to be available and, and the, in, the insurance question is what happens if I take a train from Barcelona to Madrid in order to catch a flight to Buenos Aires? Um, but my train is delayed. Who will uh, who will be responsible for that? Or do we just say tough luck? Or do we tell consumers you have to arrive a day earlier and stay in a hotel, which of course increases the costs? Are there already uh, ideas as to how that can be combined? Are there airlines mm -hmm. that offer a, a service where you have a train connection? Yeah, I mean, well, but first of all, I mean, if what you're doing is you're taking seats um, out of a market, right? What it means is that you're driving up the cost. Of you know of of travel in that market, which is bad, obviously for consumers. Um, it is possible with some uh, airlines to include train journeys in with a ticket, and when you are ticketed together, right, rather than separately, there's usually at least some obligation to be rescheduled on a later flight, even with an inter intermodal journey, right. So. It can be addressed. Um, it, it's complicated uh, institutions and technology has to move along with it. Um, but uh, it's certainly you know inconvenient. I mean, think about um, a family with small children taking a five-hour train journey before you get on a long flight. I mean, there's a reason why people you know, prefer you know the much more efficient modes of travel, and it's not just a, a, a preference. It's a you know it, it's how you're living your life and how you're um, you know managing to make those you know, trips to visit family you know stay connected possible. And it's not just optional trips. I mean, whether the, the Madrid Barcelona route where people are literally just flying that back and forth is traditionally a much more um, you know business focused. Uh, a customer, uh, maybe, maybe there's a lot fewer of those um, day trips than there used to be. And so, you know, fewer Madrid-Barcelona flights may make sense for airlines. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the connect, you can connect, I mean, you can fly nonstop from to many places out of both Barcelona and Madrid. You can't 
uh, out of some of the smaller uh, cities. So you really are left with much longer journeys, which is far more costly to uh, the passenger. And also not necessarily fair to the rural areas that already rely on those smaller airports in order to get connectivity. Now, uh, we want to move to the next uh, to the next uh, topic, which is uh, Schiphol Airport. So the, the Dutch government has decided to reduce the amount of flights that can operate out of Schiphol Airport. So it's, uh, the limit will, will be effective from, the, from March 31st, 2024, down from half a million flights to 460,000 flights. And Schiphol Airport has decided to cut down uh, on the amount of slots. And some airlines are not happy, including... Uh, Jet Blue, which only recently started doing a direct flight between uh, the East Coast and, and Amsterdam, uh, and is now complaining. Um, can you tell us more about sort of how this is unfolding and what you think is a, is a justified response? So, so this is you know, interesting. Jet Blue um, has you know, wants to continue to fly to fly to Amsterdam, uh, and they've been told that they will not be welcome because as they cut down on flights, um, there's a preference for, you know, long-standing incumbent airlines, which is what you often get in regulation, right? We often, oh, I want to regulate this because I don't like the way something works, but regulation often very much rebounds to the benefit of incumbent players. Uh, in Amsterdam, they are uh, new uh, and, you know, they're Frankly, often their fares are quite good, um, and you know one of the things that we've seen in uh, you know in, in, in France is we, you get rid of some of the low low cost competition you know, ostensibly for the environment. We just don't want people to be able to fly inexpensively because that means they're flying. Well, that benefits higher cost carriers like Air France at the expense of you know those who are making travel much more affordable, including on Air France because they drive down fares regardless of who you're buying from. Um, so. JetBlue wants to fly to Amsterdam. They've been told that they can't. Um, The U.S. has said in response, well, wait a minute. So we actually have a treaty uh, (laughs) that that guarantees airlines the ability to, you know, more or less fly where they want, um, when they want. I mean, airports can have slots and you have to uh, buy them, but you can't uh, be told that, uh, that, that you don't, that you're not able to fly. Uh, And in fact, JetBlue has had slots and has already been flying. The concern, uh, so JetBlue went to the U.S. government and said, well, you ought to kick KLM out of New York, um, which is not a particularly good outcome for anyone, um, maybe for JetBlue, but not even really there. They think that it's leverage, um, not something that would be consistent with an actual treaty that is already in place between, uh, you know, b- between the U.S. and Europe. And so there's a risk of escalation uh, of uh, effectively a trade war in aviation. So if the U.S. weren't, so if if if, if the Dutch government does uh, ultimately uh, keep out a U.S. carrier that's flying there, and the U.S. responds in kind after the required consultations in the treaty, uh, you know, Europe may you know respond itself in kind, uh, and then what we get. Uh, out of that escalation is you know fewer flights, higher prices, higher prices not just for tickets but also for cargo. So the movement of goods you know, and people—the very thing that you know Europe as a community got together in creating the EU to um, to push back against. Um, so we we do have you know I mean I I, I do think ultimately um, the the Dutch government needs to honor these treaty obligations and. 
yeah, as we we talked about, it's not clear that keeping JetBlue out um, to you know the benefit of incumbent players is really something that is primarily of uh, of benefit to the environment. Uh, and it, what, what does it mean? It means that people who are um, flying to Amsterdam are more likely to do it on the national carrier. Um, but those who are connecting are more like it's not that they're not going to fly. They fly through other hubs that have more capacity. Uh, it, so I, it, it's, it's dubious uh, what benefit is even being talked about here other than to uh, more provincial interests. Yeah, it seems indeed that... Uh, uh, this doesn't really solve the problem. I mean, it, I, I suppose it helps the Dutch government in the sense that it can reduce its its overall CO2 emissions and other emissions numbers because it's under pressure by the European Commission right now to do that. But essentially, it would be shifting it to other airports. And I think another concern is really that of the sort of the conflict of interest with the Dutch government being involved as a, as a, as a stakeholder in KLM um, and, and of course, having its interest. I mean, th when I saw the reduction numbers, what I thought was fascinating as well is that it says, okay, this will actually disproportionately uh, affect KLM because it is the largest airline at, at Skipwell Airport. However, of course, when you cut down on each end and JetBlue only has one, you know, one, one, I think it's just one slot uh, that, that JetBlue has at Skipwell Airport and that falls away, then the diversity of choices for the consumer also falls away because right, while KLM might lose uh, three, four, five intercontinental flights out of this, JetBlue loses the entirety of its offer. Well, and if so, they will wind up cutting their most marginal flights and some of the slack gets picked up. You know, Air France KLM moves some flying to Paris, Charles de Gaulle. Uh, as a passenger, I would rather fly through Amsterdam uh, than connect to Charles de Gaulle. Uh, so there may be a, a, a consumer loss there as well. Let's move to the to the last uh, issue that I wanted to talk to you about, which is uh, the UK government through the uh, King's speech has announced it wants to crack down on low cost airlines exploiting consumers through hidden fees. Uh, and this uh, this uh, this is called sneaky drip pricing is what the UK government calls this. Uh, and essentially, the argument here is that people book a fairly low fare on, on, a, on a low cost airline such as Ryanair or EasyJet or any 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 of those. Uh, and then they are surprised by some of the hidden fees, which means, for instance, adding a carry on or they forgot to check in online. Now they have to check in at the, the counter, which will also uh, cost them extra fees. Uh, what do you think here? Are low cost carriers essentially just exploiting uh, consumers, uh, getting them hooked with a low price, but then ultimately uh, s uh, s smashing uh, the, the heavy-handed price tag of other fees on top of them. Oh, goodness. I mean, look, uh, it is widely understood what it means to fly uh, Ryanair or EasyJet. Um, you know, over a decade ago, if you look it up on YouTube, there's this incredibly hilarious song uh, called uh, Cheap Flights. It's Google Cheap Flights. And um, it's line, there's no such thing as a flight for 50p. Okay. Um, they are, but these fees are anything but hidden. Uh, they are all, not just all over the uh, website of these carriers. Um, they are uh, disclosed clearly in the booking process. Because what they, what in fact uh, these airlines want you to do is pay fees and get discounts on those fees for making those purchases early. What a lot of these things are designed around 
uh, isn't just raising revenue, but keeping costs down. So if you check in uh, online or in the app instead of at the airport, that means um, lower staffing costs at the airport. It means uh, fewer queues and fewer people missing flights, fewer people dealing with rebookings. Uh, there are all of these um, fees that incentivize passengers not to be carrying on as many things, which allows the airline to board a plane more quickly, turn it around more quickly. You know, the airline doesn't make money when a plane is on the ground. They lose a lot of money when they're delayed. Um, they can schedule much more efficiently, so they get more out of an aircraft. Uh, time flights when people actually want to fly. Uh, many of these fees are, are around getting, people are paying, right, not uh, with a low-cost carrier often in their time and their attention and their planning um, rather than in their money. But overall, what they do is they do drive down the cost of travel for people, making it far more accessible. They also, uh, because carriers like British Airways have to compete for passengers, drive down the cost of travel on British Airways, right? And so who doesn't like them the most are the largest legacy carriers that charge more, right? So a crackdown on the low-cost carriers is a way of raising price to the benefit of the largest incumbent uh, airlines in the market, uh, rather than being a benefit for consumers. Now, do people would people like to have cheaper travel and not pay fees for things? Um, sure, but that's like not how this works. Um, the overall price level is lower with this model in the market uh, and customers have a choice about uh, what they want to buy. What this, what, what this approach would do is take away the inexpensive option, right? Uh, and so you say all consumers must um, spend more for travel, which you know, is over, not good for the passenger, for the customer, um, but is good for the airlines who aren't pursuing this model when they don't have to compete. I can tell you, Gary, as somebody who's fairly tall, uh, for the American listeners, I'm, I'm about uh, six seven. Uh, that's uh, that's two meters uh, in 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 the metric system. Uh, I am very happy that people do have to pay extra for the emergency exit seat because when I when I, when the business class uh, a trip is fairly steep. Uh, I choose poor man's business class in emergency exit. And if it was available for everyone, uh, that would never be available to me. If I, 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 can pay, I can pay a certain amount of money for it and then I have it available for me. I, I, I do quite like uh, that. What I wanted to pick up on when you mentioned the legacy carriers, what I find so interesting is in this conversation that increasingly uh, the supposedly non-low-cost carriers are also adopting a similar model where, you know, I remember on Lux Air when, from my home country where, you know, the, 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 the checked-in bag was always included. Now, that's not the case anymore. They have a light fare. Uh, many of them also don't offer snacks and food anymore. You have to pay extra for those. Wi-Fi is also one of those amenities that, you know, is just charged extra. Aren't we moving increasingly in, into all airlines making those things optional and, 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 and services extra? Uh, so there's a pendulum. Uh, one of the things that British Airways found is that as they increasingly moved in that direction, for a while, right, the CEO of, 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 the, of the group, the ownership group, you know, they brought in the head of Vueling, right? So this is the model that they were trying to uh, follow throughout their, you know, throughout the airline group. And they found that um, they so degraded their brand that they were losing premium business. And so 
it turns out not to have rebounded entirely to their benefit. Um, you know, they if they lose the reputation of British Airways as a premium airline, um, you know, they have they which they they rely on this premium business out of Heathrow. They have large premium cabins, um, and people choose to fly somebody else if they're you know. So they've since then tried to make investments, bringing back some food, bringing in better food. But, delivering the message that they're still a premium airline and trying to differentiate their product that way. Um, so they'd absolutely like it if they could both you know, differentiate their product as a premium airline and outlaw the competition, right? Like, um, and then they could kind of have both ways without worrying so much. Well, thank you so much, Gary Leff, for, for your insights there. Um, just as a, as a plug for uh, your website, what do people get at View from the Wink? Uh, well, my view on just about everything, but honestly, um, take on uh, passenger experience on the best uh, deals, uh, use of miles, uh, best value, uh, airlines, hotels, loyalty programs. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. Please do subscribe to the Fun Police podcast series uh, wherever you listen to uh, this podcast right now. And follow the Consumer Choice Center at Consumer Choice C on Instagram as well, on Facebook, whatever you're using, we're probably there. So, yeah, thank you so much for listening and see you Thursday. You have